0: Good morning, Covenant College, and that's what I want to hear. <clears throat> Today we're stepping aside from our normal chapel program to do something a little different. Every year at this time, I come before you to tell you, I guess it's Halloween, but what is it, people? Nice, that makes me happy. <clears throat> So, I want to remind you as part of the Covenant College community, our expectation, our thought, our understanding is that we're part of a much larger story. A Christian college-like covenant seeks to faithfully live before the God of Abraham and Isaac, the God of Mary and Paul, the God of Sister Macrina and Bernard of Clairvaux and yet we're also a school that is particularly linked to the Protestant Reformation. And so we unapologetically trace our history back to that Protestant Reformation. And with the early Reformers, we hold to the the primacy of God in all things. We hold to the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. We hold to the nature of radical grace uniquely found in the person and work of Christ. And so what we do for these academic lectures for Reformation Day is we find speakers that are appreciative of the Reformed tradition, and yet who think that tradition is not dead but is alive, who can come and, and bring us fresh words and perspectives and insight. And that brings me to our Reformation lecturer today, Dr. John Whitfleet. I'm excited to have Dr. Whitfleet with us. He's the director of the Calvin Institute of Christian Worship. He's a professor of worship theology and congregational and ministry studies at Calvin University and Calvin Theological Seminary. And for the sake of time, I'm not gonna list all the books he's written. I'm not gonna talk about all the hymnals he's helped craft, but I will just tell you, and this is not an overstatement, he is truly recognized as an international authority on Reformed liturgy and worship, and it's a delight we get to hear him. I will tell you, not only do you have right now to hear him, but in this same space at 4 p.m. today, I would encourage you to come back. He will be giving the second of these lectures. Today, in this afternoon at four, it will be singing the Lord's Prayer with Luther and Calvin in Liturgy and Life, and then tomorrow at 11, when? Yeah, I know you'll forget, but anyways. Tomorrow at 11, here, same thing. He will be talking about singing the Ten Commandments with John Calvin in Liturgy and Life. Please join me in welcoming Dr. John Whitfleet.
1: (laughs) Greetings to you all. It's a joy to be here. Uh, greetings from all of us at Calvin University, Calvin Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We are institutions that stand in the same tradition, have a common mission, and it is good to feel the love of Jesus and the desire to worship God in every aspect of life in this campus. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm not sure Dr. Capick recognized that he invited a Notre Dame graduate to address you on Reformation Commemoration. <laughs> But it is true. My first day as a graduate student at the University of Notre Dame, I had come from Calvin uh, College at the time and Calvin Seminary, and I was a little nervous about how things would go at Notre Dame. The first person to greet me was a priest, a Catholic priest, with a clerical garb. And he opened his arms and said to me, it is so good to have another Calvinist around here. True story. I was caught off guard. I was very nervous, very insecure, and all I could say back was, who is the other one? (laughs) To which he smiled and said, me, of course. Father Regis Duffy taught sacramental theology at Notre Dame, and that semester, he had us read John Calvin's theology for about half the semester. It was Augustine and Calvin and then some contemporary theologians. There was so much to discover about the depth and riches of the Christian faith, and I admire his graciousness in that moment, and it is out of that graciousness that I am thrilled to commemorate Reformation with you, and just like he would do, to return to the font of all true reform and revival in the church, which is God's inspired word. And so I'd like to begin now with a reading from Psalm 130. And I think if Luther would hear, he would want you to stand. So please stand for the reading of God's Word. And I think Luther in the 15-teens, right about the time that led up to the dramatic events that led to the Reformation, Luther would have engaged in daily prayer in readings in a very embodied way. And so I'd invite you to take your hands and place them over your heart. And call to mind the honest spiritual struggles we do face. What are the anxieties you carry with you today? The concern about addictions, the struggles, points of fear, shame, guilt, every one of us has it in there. Call it to mind, and then let me lead you through the words of this psalm. And then, about halfway through the psalm, my hands are going to move up as the psalm leads us on a journey and join me in an embodied way to hear and pray the words of Psalm 130. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord. More than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with the Lord is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. The word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Martin Luther loved Psalm 130. One of the seven penitential psalms of the Old Testament It was central in medieval practices of penance that had for him become such a source of challenge, spiritual struggle and problems, the source of anxiety. But when confronted with the words of Psalm 130 and the teaching of Apostle Paul and especially Ephesians and Galatians and Romans, Luther came to the glowing conviction that we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ and that our own works were not necessary to earn salvation. The lavish grace of God was the gift that Luther celebrated his whole life long, and it is a gift that continues to be given today. Luther's work began being confronted with the promises, not just of Apostle Paul, but also these Old Testament texts that announced forgiveness, forgiveness, unfailing love, God's full redemption, it's crystal clear and beautiful and compellingly portrayed in that poetry. The story of 1517 in the early months of the Reformation is often taught, but the part that interests me today is what Luther did about five years later. Five or six years later, Luther set about a new phase of his ministry And he said it was so important to him that these texts not just be read and not just be preached, but that they be sung, that they be prayed through song. And Luther the theologian sat down to actually make good on his own vision by crafting a hymn-like version of this psalm for people to sing. You won't all need it, but if you happen to have a Trinity hymnal in front of you, you could turn to number 554, 554, You won't need it, though. Luther took great care to craft a poetic version of Psalm 130 that could be sung. And wonderfully, we've already sung it. Kudos, in fact, shout out to the chapel team today who led us in a translation, a direct translation of Martin Luther's own poem based on Psalm 130 from 1523. Luther took the words of the psalm, turned them into German poetry. And by the way, he did a masterful job at it. 212 syllables to be exact, because you have to be exact when you're writing poetry for congregations to sing... And he did it by only using German words that were one or two syllables long, which is an astonishing accomplishment, (coughs) if you know German. It's an astonishing accomplishment. He wanted this psalm to be direct and immediate, and he wanted people to enter into it and be able to sing it. English majors will appreciate the fact that he chose to do it not just in six lines of poetry, but seven it invites everybody to slow down. And music majors will appreciate that when Luther sat to write the tune, as Luther also did for this hymn, that he chose to set it in a minor like key. It's called the Phrygian mode. It sounds soulful, lament orienting, it is solemn. And I'm going to sing a verse of this for you to have a sense of how Luther felt about Psalm 130. And I want you to feel the solemnity and the weight of the invitation that he issued for people to pray. So
2: just listen. Was
1: not aiming. Thank you. Thank you. Luther was not aiming at a song that would top the charts. He was aiming at a song that would invite people deeper into prayer. It is a depth kind of prayer. Pray more deeply was the invitation. But sometimes, people might say, okay, Luther wrote a song, and they'd stop the story right here, but it's what happens next that actually shows the heart of Luther the pastor. Like any good poet or theologian, Luther was not content with his first setting of Psalm 130, and so the following winter, he revised it. And in some of the manuscripts of Luther, you see handwritten comments, especially on some later hymns, where you realize he obsessed to get just the right message, just the right emphasis, to make sure that people were hearing the force of the message in its context. And when Luther edited the text of this particular hymn, he wanted to make the point especially clear. If you have your Trinity hymnals, you can see it at the end of the first line of stanza two and three, and I'll read it for, the, for everyone. You don't need to, again to have the book. Stanza two, translated from Luther, to wash away the crimson stain, grace, grace alone availeth. Okay. Now, Psalm 130 talks about the grace of God, but that line is not in Psalm 130. That line sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul. In stanza three, first line, therefore my trust is in the Lord, and then Luther adds, just in case you hadn't gotten the point, and not in my own merit. In fact, that phrase, and not in my own merit, shows up in quite a number of Luther's hymns. As one commenter said, Luther made Psalm 130 sound a lot like Ephesians 2. Luther made David sound a lot like Paul. He made the connections clear so that the message would get through. It's a powerful refining force. But Luther, the pastor, was not yet done because it was about two years after that that Luther took this same text with its strong emphasis on the unmerited grace of God and he put it in a little collection of six hymns And I think it is absolute genius. Imagine that you are in a core theology class here at Covenant, and you get to the end of a semester, and your professor says, oh, you can put away all notes from your lectures all semester long. All you need to do to study for the final exam are to learn these six songs. The entire semester summed up in six songs. That would sound a lot like Martin Luther. Martin Luther created a fabulous little collection of six songs to convey the force and meaning and significance of the Christian faith, and they were attached to the Sunday school curriculum called Catechism that Martin Luther implemented for families and parishes throughout the early German Reformation. The fancy German name for this little collection would be the catechismus leader, catechism songs. There is one song about the Ten Commandments, one song about the Lord's Prayer, one song about the Apostles' Creed, one song about baptism, one song about the Lord's Supper, and then one song about repentance. How is it that we express and convey to God our sense of our sorrow for sin and our hope in Jesus Christ, that we look to Jesus alone for our salvation? And Luther said kids could memorize catechism answers. They could learn principles in a theology like church school class. But what is far more effective is for the kids to sing their truth, to sing truth right into the depths of their soul. And so Psalm 130, this music to this text with Luther's own Paul-like interpretation becomes added in And it becomes part of the pedagogical training approach for every young child growing up in Lutheran parishes. But Luther doesn't stop there. Luther says to families, one of the most important things that families need to do at home is to read the Bible and to pray. And when families pray at home, it is important not just that they pray out of their own experience, but that they learn to pray the prayers of Scripture. And so Luther said to families, Psalm 130, Aus Tiefenot in German, Out of the depths I cry to you, is a song that belongs actually at your family dinner table. And we have amazing testimonies of family leaders and church teachers who write little instructional guides for family prayer that say, and when you are at table, be sure not only to read God's word, not only to pray, but also to sing. And then, of course, the very same songs would be sung in public worship. A lot of people credit Luther as a courageous, courageous soul who spoke the truth even when it was fiercely resisted by Catholic authorities at the time. A lot of people credit Luther because he's a remarkable theologian who wrote tons of stuff. I mean, the volumes of Luther's works go to something like 50 volumes. But what I love is Luther, who has the heart of a pastor and who woke up every day thinking, how can the people in my care come to care and love and live the Christian faith. And one of the strategies that he cherished the most was the strategy of uniting a life in song, being confronted with the beauty of this biblical text, learning to sing it, teaching it to the kids, singing it at a dinner table, and then having it come back in Sunday morning where people would know the text, kids and all, and sing this gospel truth, in significant form. There was an integration of liturgy and life, of private prayer and public worship, of church education and pastoral care as Luther ministered to people who themselves were great, uh, greatly anxious. It's pastoral genius that is at work. Now, it's important that we not say that uh, everything in the Reformation went according to plan. There were struggles along the way. Not everyone loved the song, the first time out of the blocks. And while later on it became a dearly loved hymn, there were some challenging moments along the way. Uh, About three years after Luther wrote this hymn, he said to a group of unsuspecting worshippers, These songs have been composed and sung for your sake so that you can sing them here at church and at home. Why is it that you sit here like blocks of wood? Therefore, I beg you, learn these songs from the children and sing them to yourselves at the same time as Paul teaches. Luther was known to be rather blunt, and he called out worshipers, who were not engaging and eager to participate early on. And I do love discovering little texts like this that remind us that for all the beauties and gifts of an era like the revival that broke out during the Reformation, there were struggles along the way too. And it wasn't just a perfect example of a perfect church. It was a group of pastors struggling to lead their people toward a more intimate experience of the Bible, an intimate experience of the Holy Spirit convicting them of the unmerited grace of God. But over time, it did come to be dearly loved. And this song became so dearly loved that it was sung at the funeral of two of the princes of the era, Duke Frederick the Wise in 1525, later on John of Saxony, But poignantly, it was this hymn that was chosen to be sung at Martin Luther's own funeral in 1546. While a mighty fortress is our God might be the hymn that most people know and associate with Luther, and that certainly has its place, it is so poignant that this became the funeral hymn for Luther and so many other leaders coming out of this tradition. Absolutely remarkable. It is a vision uh, of, um, at, at key moments in culture and in life, of returning to songs that have become heart songs, that have become identity markers, and saying, we need to have those spiritual identity markers in our life. And I'd encourage you to be thinking about, what song would be sung at a funeral in your family? if you were picking a song today? It's a question I often ask my students. They don't much like thinking about it at first, but I love the answers that come back. Songs of deep faith, songs that celebrate the unmerited grace of God, and that become spiritual anchors in difficult times. It was in the next century, in the town of Strasbourg, that the French army was coming and worshipers gathered inside of this cathedral, and someone had to pick the song. The song they picked, Martin Luther's Psalm 130. So call to mind as I prepare to sing the final stanza. Call to mind Martin Luther's funeral. Call to mind that dramatic scene in Strasbourg. Call to mind Martin Luther's lifelong desire to unite prayer and liturgy and learning and life, and feel the force of the poignant prayers of lament that became a prayer of hope, the journey of Psalm 130. We'll be right back. back. Almighty and loving God, thank you beyond measure for the gift of hope we receive through Jesus Christ. Thank you for your faithful servant, Martin, for the music that echoed in his own soul, and for his passion to have it echo in ours. Thank you for these notes, these words that help us to pray. And thank you for that amazing setting of Psalm 130 we sang at the beginning that we can put on our spotify list and take us take it with us all day long bless and keep us and help us always to look to you alone for our salvation in jesus name amen